Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Team Human is a labor of love. You can get the ad-free version as well as access to our live events, Discord server, and monthly Team Human salons by going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine, an opportunity to pull back from the oversimplified logic of cause and effect and embrace the interconnected swirl of life, consciousness, and interrelationships. The world is in flux, but so are we. It's time to embrace that we're in this together and no one makes it through without the others. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, systems thinker, author, poet, the founder of the Bateson Institute, and author-poet of the new book, Combining, Nora Bateson. Thinking about what it is you're putting into the space between us. What's in the ecology of communication? What are you bringing in? What's the texture? What's the flavor? If I say something, what does it make possible for you to say? Nora will be sharing the sense and sensibility of true interdependence and helping us muster the courage to embrace ambiguity. It's time to intervene on behalf of people and all living things. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. I know these have been hard times for a lot of you. Uh, Me too. There's been a whole lot of who did what to whom going on and analyses of whether tit really is for tat. And that's why I'm glad we get to spend an hour with someone who can help us shed our linear thinking for a moment and express ourselves as uh, participants of, of more of an ecology of communication where nothing stands alone. So we instead uh, tackle issues at multiple levels and through multiple perspectives all at once. I guess it may sound soft and squishy, but it requires more rigor, not less. It's an approach to reality that's not for the faint of heart, but for those who are full enough of heart to break open altogether. I visited Nora in her hotel room in New York this month before she went to do a big event for the Institute of General Semantics. And if it feels a little bit like you're eavesdropping on a private conversation, well, I think that's a good thing. Nora is different, and every conversation with her is both personal and universal at the same time. I think you'll hear what I mean. So, Nora, you actually, I think you're the only person who's ever come on Team Human three times. (gasps) This is your third, I believe. We talked twice before. But you embody Team Human. 
as a in a single a person in one in one person there's a whole team of humans in there and other and other species as we were just talking about in your your gut biome and everything else here you're everything and accepting of them all and you've been an inspiration and teacher to me in this whole process mm. as I've gone through it i mean really the the your work for me the most important aspect of your work for me is to be recognizing the in between you know, I always talk about how we live in this world where all these computers and systems seem to value the ticks on the clock and not the space mm-hmm. in between the ticks when we actually live. And I say that a lot, but that's mainly because I'm a person who lives on the ticks of the clock mm. and very rarely gets in the in between because, like many men of the 16th century, um, <laughs> I'm afraid, <laughs> I'm afraid of that in between, mm. you know, there's mm-hmm. like the space between each monkey bar, between each rail on the, on the mm. ladder. It's like anything can happen there. And uh. But isn't that exactly it? I yeah. mean, I was thinking about what I wanted to talk about for the launch of this book. I feel that maybe the most important thing that this book is actually doing is providing a place to practice in lots of different textures and tones and forms of language and ideas to practice what it is to take care of the possibility that is in the in-between. Okay. So what you said, anything can happen. And that's exactly the opposite of everything is stuck. Right. So what I see is that in this in-between, there is vast possibility. And it's a, a whole realm of possibility that is virtually untouched by the kind of thinking that's anxious and and eager for desperate solution. Right. But the place they're looking for possibility is not where the possibility is. They're not looking for possibility. They're looking for probabilities, you know, which has always been my problem with, with AI and with behavioral economics and with a captology and online algorithms is they're trying to auto-tune humanity towards the most probable outcome so they can bet on it and revert us to the mean and all that. Because, you know, possibility is the enemy of, of people betting on the future. You know, it's the enemy of capitalism. Possibility? I mean, what do we even do with that? What do we even say about that when there is this completely stuck system? And so many people with beautiful hearts and minds trying desperately to get out of or find a way through the patterns that we're living in that are so destructive to each other and the future of our children and the air, the oceans, et cetera, our bodies. And then the only place they can go, and I, I have empathy for them, is the the collapsniks, the collapse people. Mm-hmm. And I participate in some of their groups online, the people that say, well, humanity is just going to have to have an utter collapse of civilization in order for the next thing then mm-hmm. to be bottom up and indigenous and wonderful and all. And it's like, isn't there a possibility other than that? Isn't there? <laughs> isn't there a possibility? Exactly. And that's my point. And there is possibility. There's enormous possibility. So how do we become more familiar and more comfortable comfortable. in that place where the, where the possibility lives? Right. You tell a story in, in the book of getting on a wrong bus or train or something in another country with your kids and having no money, not enough money even to get back and not speaking the language, which for most families would be an opportunity to model panic for your child. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And you didn't. No, just the opposite. My thinking was, okay, this is great. (laughs) This is how you do lost. Right. This is what you do when you're lost. And I, I thought, I mean, I was very conscious of it because you don't learn how to sail by only having sunny days. Right. You have to have some stormy days. And so I figure, you know, the odds are good that at some point in their lives, my kids are going to experience lostness of one sort or another, whether they're on a bus or it's emotional lostness or whether it's career lostness or whatever it is. And how do you do lost? And what is that familiarity of being lost? What do you start to do 
Well, then you, what did you do? You asked each of them how much money they had yeah. or something to start? <laughs> I was like, so, and look out the window and do you recognize anything? And then we finally got off. We got off at the wrong place. We got back on. We, and then it started to rain. And eventually we figured it out. You know, one thing just led to the next thing. But that's the thing is that if you allow for one thing to lead to the next thing, you are in active possibility realm. If you already target the goal and you only know what the goal is and your attention is out there, you'll miss all the information that is in the detail of the moment. And there's always something. There's just always something. I mean, in some cases, when we, with best of intentions, we set a goal that we believe will get us out of a certain mess. We almost put blinders on and miss the opportunities, the alternative opportunities to get out of the mess because we're just like if we go to, um, okay, climate change, carbon cap, carbon. Yeah. Carbon is the thing. Let's just capture carbon, do whatever we can to capture carbon. You know, and I was just talking to a guy, I'm going to make these things that go on the back of trucks that's going to capture their carbon and we're going to save the world that way. It's like, but what about the kids that you're sending into the mines to get their rare earth metals to make the thing? It's like, well, don't worry about that. We're going to get that. You know, and it's like, but what if you just spend more time with your family and try and went less on airplanes? What if you, you know, there's, there's, I mean, not that that's going to solve the whole thing, but I feel like I get it. And science and metrics and rigor is important when we're looking at how do we solve this problem together. But there's a, a, I don't know, I started to feel, and I got critiqued for saying this out loud, but I'll say it again anyway, that our best chance of averting climate change might be what we think of as magic. Mm. <laughs> in other words, if people if people changed the what they're doing and what they want to get out of life and what they if we had a, a massive mind shift, mm-hmm. I think we could change our behaviors enough to well fix I mean, the thing. One of the blessings of being human is being irrational. And that irrationality leads to falling in love. Mm-hmm. It leads to creativity. It leads to all sorts of possibilities. It also leads to madness and destruction. Right. But in that irrationality, which I think is sort of what you mean when you say magic, right. there's the possibility for all these other connections to take place. And they don't track with the existing logic of a situation. So I think one of the main things to look out for right now is any solution that tracks really well with the existing system and the existing way of thinking is probably a problem. Right. On because, some level. Yeah. It's probably a recap. It's probably some sort of a, a continuation of the same damaged thinking that is going to create more damage. Where, and when, However well-meaning it might be. Uh, right. It's very well-meaning. Yeah. But, but what I have been discovering and working with is this and, and at first, honestly, I was very apologetic about it because people would work with warm data or they would do stuff with me and they would come out saying, I feel really disoriented. I feel really dizzy. I can't uh. figure out what to do with my life now. And at first I felt like, oh, no, no, it's fine. Everything's right. going to be okay. And then I realized, actually, this disorientation is gold. Right. Because how are we going to get into a different orientation if we don't disorient. Right. And if we can get, it's hard, if we can get comfortable with the disorientation, even when the stakes are seemingly high, mm. you start to seek the disorientation. I mean, I when I was reading the passage in your book about, you know, it wasn't in Europe or whatever, but as a kid, I'd go out with my friend, Bob, Bob Hirosh, if you're listening, I love you. We would, <laughs> we would like go walking and try to get lost. Yeah. So that then you've got to figure out how to get back. You know, we would walk into other neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading about, of all people, Richard Branson, when he was a kid, they didn't have a lot of money. And for entertainment, his mother used to bring him out in the car to like some faraway place and leave him there. Like give him like a, a little bit of money to try to get home. Right. And he'd spend the whole day searching back and to experience that as pleasure. As, mm-hmm. you know, as a game, as, as, a, a, as something fun. To seek it out. I mean, what's why? Why do people drop acid or whatever? Because you want to disorient, right. you know? 
to see the world in that other way because and if you want to read like you've got this poem that's really about this Mm. you know how addicted we are to the sort of the the corridors of mind the high leverage points that we know and how that kind of blinds us again to the possibility yeah i i want to offer you an image alongside this that Uh comes later in the book in the piece on double binds at the polycrosis and it's this image of on the one hand the logo for the sustainable development goals right and you know the logo it's got the 17 squares and right. each one is a bright color and it says you know end of poverty and gender equality and all these good things yeah. oceans are clear inarguably nice yeah, children can breathe yeah but if you look at that picture and you ask yourself what does this image tell us about the culture that is looking at it, is receiving it. What does it tell us? And then if you put next to that image, the image of a woman nursing her baby. And now every single one of those sustainable development goals is present (laughs) in the possibility of us as mammals actually feeding the babies, right? Right. Uh, We won't. As mammals, we, we can't continue if we can't feed the babies. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. So in that image of a woman nursing her baby is that you have to have clean water. You have to have clean air. You have the people who feed the babies have to be able to feed their babies. The soil has to be able to make food to feed the babies. Every single thing. Right. And for this to be happening in a healthy way, the woman has to have human rights as a person or she's going to be feeding, you know, cortisol to her baby rather than nourishment. Exactly. So it's just a really interesting and I think important way of perceiving the differences in abstraction. You know, we talk about the map and the territory. Right. And I think that's a really interesting example of map and territory. Right. And, you know, the interesting thing, because the map, which is that listicle mm-hmm. of human rights and all those good things, is this negotiated. You know how many meetings and, and annual conferences they had to get to those and how many people are angry about them and oh but you didn't include this or you put this is number three and it should have been number two and that is number seven i mean and i've seen the critiques of that thing once you list it like that there's so many considerations there's so much you can get really lost in a lot of questions that go down all sorts of pathways but not to the pathway of how do we feed the babies which is this really deep i mean ancient completely mammal thing to do right and it's emotional it's intellectual it's biological it's evolutionary it's part of and that's sort of i guess what i was getting to is like i i've gotten lost down the climate hallway and looking at all the different things and the people talking about meta crisis and the water and the air and do we put silicon dioxide particles here and the ph this and that and it gets so and that's what i meant it almost as magic but as this there's this holistic climate sensibility Mm -hmm. which you could call new agey or marion williamson or the wrong side Mm -hmm. or whatever sorry but if you internalize that as like what you're saying the mother and the baby if that's what you're prioritizing your life will change your decisions will change. The getting the 60-inch Samsung TV will change. Mm-hmm. Wanting to send the children into the mines to get the rare earth metal for your friggin' rechargeable becomes car. Becomes unthinkable. Becomes unthinkable. Right. And the, what I would suggest is actually that to to learn and to practice perceiving 
those places in which our lives are still so connected with the vitality of life itself, Mm. like that image, that those places will teach us so much. My dad once said, the major problems in the world are the difference between the way nature works and the way people think. And there it is. And it, you know, nature never solves one problem at a time. Never. There's always, you know, a thousand things that are getting responded to. These are what you're calling, and I guess you didn't make it up, but, and these are nth order problems and nth order solutions. Right. And they're right in front of us. And if we want to not have the rigor to perceive it in there, you can look at a, a mother nursing her baby and say, oh, well, that's just some hippie stuff. But actually, that's a fantastic, rigorous process. If you were to actually think out and diagram and, and actually work with all the ways in which that one act is creating life that makes more life, that makes more life, that makes more life, that, right. right? And that's where we get stuck with the more boxy the map is that we get caught in the first level. We're going to do this to do that. We're going to put this on the back of the trucks to stop cause and effect. It was empirical science and it worked for a whole lot of things and building bridges and pendulums. It's great. It's great. It's just that the issues that we're in now are not first order issues. Right. And it's interesting because first order issues, you could also argue that's that's back to Korzybski, that's the language problem. You know, that we from so young, what's this? What's that? What's this? This is that. This is that. And you've got the great quote in there where you say, uh, it's a Korzybski quote, there's no such thing as an object in isolation. Right. You know, that's Krasinski saying that, but you bringing it, you you teasing it out. You know, there's no such thing. I mean, in a sense, there's no such, if there's no such thing as an object in isolation, then sorry, there's no such thing as an object. You know, there really isn't. You can sort of draw an imaginary box around some part of the system and put a name to that because mm. you can see that pattern not. Oh, look, there's another bird. There's another bird, but it's not a bird. It's right. this one part of the forest and the, and the, it's a, what is it? It's a worm eater. Right. It's a worm eater. It's a seed pooper. Yeah. It's a, <laughs> it's in all sorts of things. Depending on the perspective. If you're the yeah. worm, that bird is not a bird. It's something else. If you're a tree, what is it? If you're, yeah. Right. So where is the edge of the bird? Where's the edge of the bird? Where's the, and where's the edge of me? Where's the edge of me? And, and so this question, where's the edge of me? I think rings through this whole book. Right. And so this piece on the hallway of hallways yeah. kind of addresses this of my, Frustration sometimes with working with people that I know and love and have enormous respect for, but I have to sit there and listen as they pour all sorts of effort into trying to solve things at the wrong level. Um, we're, we're constantly trying to solve the consequences and leaving all of those processes in place that are generating destruction that makes destruction that makes destruction instead of making life that makes life that makes life so this poem i'll read it to you it's called hallway of hallways trying to fix the wrong context of broken is a hallway of hallways the suffering is the consequence not the problem don't solve it it's not that the schools are not good enough it's that the next generation is being squeezed into the past It's not that poverty is devastating, it's that the economy devastates. It's not that our bodies have been violated, it's that predators are celebrated. It's not that tech is evil, it's that it's unable to feel. It's not that the doctor is wrong, it's that the poison in the food, water, and air, and stress are beyond the reach of medication. It's not that politicians don't make change, It's that they're bound to keep things as they are. It's not that the journalism is crap. It's that it's selling one side of a 1,000-sided story. It's not that the climate has problems. It's that identity is mixed up with material wealth. It's not that there are dangers out there. It's that people need each other and are taught to hold back. No committee or action team can actually reach the conditions that produce the issues but they can produce metrics on solving the consequences. It's not that there's no wish to meet the deeper needs. It's that healing cannot be divided or measured by department. The confusion is compounding. 
going down a path that starts with an inadequate task is the beginning of an assembly line of industrial-sized overlapping systemic problems. You see, for me, that was that it reminded me of Dante when he describes the different kinds of hell, and then Milton does it again in Paradise Lost. You know, these different ways, and they're not, you know, it changed the understand my understanding of hell as it's not about evil. Mm-hmm. Hell is more like these bardos that you get caught in because you're ju- you're caught in mm-hmm. this, this I don't know whether it's karma or dharma or something, but you're caught trying to solve things with the wrong tools and it's just endless. You end mm-hmm. up in this room. It's like, okay, we're arguing here. And you know, as one of these people, I go to all the conferences, right? And I'm on all the panels and I'm listening. Okay, we're going to use this to try to solve the problem. We're going to use this to try to solve it. And I eventually get to this other place that's scary on two levels. One, it's scary for the reason that we can cure me of, which is it's unknown. It's possible. Mm-hmm. It's okay, Douglas. It's fine. No one's going to hurt you. Possibility's fine. Don't worry. It's great. It's you know, I'll, get, I'll build tolerance mm. for the open-endedness of that in a world where I was taught to have the answer to the math test in order to get the prize, right? So I ache for the conclusion. And I have a lot of people asking me for the answer too. So I feel obligated to give an answer when I know they're actually deep down is not. So there's that. <laughs> Don't right? you just hate that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but this is the thing about double binds. Yeah. Okay. And the double bind is this situation that my father described where you get caught. Okay. And, and it was described at first as a, a human-centered pattern of communication. But it's, it, he never meant it as that. It was always meant to be much deeper than that. Mm. It was meant to be an evolutionary process, okay? An evolutionary necessity that as organisms, you get to a place where the thing you used to do to survive no longer works, right. okay? Because of course that's going to happen when all of the organisms are changing all the time. Eventually, things have to change. You can't just keep doing the same thing. So- but I learned how to do this thing so well. Right. And so <laughs> someone wants to keep doing the thing. Yeah. But if you keep doing that thing, you die. Right. But the perception of how to do another thing is so, so disorienting right. that it feels like death. Yes. Okay. So you can't go there because you can't feel that. You can't go there because you don't know what it is and you might die because it's not right. the thing you know. Right. Okay. So this thing, how do you solve a double bind? And the way that you deal with a double bind is that you meet it from another context. And what we're always trying to do is to isolate the problem and match the solution to the problem. Right. So to meet from another context, like what I just did with the SDGs and the woman nursing her baby, right. we went to another context. And then there were a whole lot of problems in the SDGs that are not there. You can see very clearly how this this woman nursing her baby. So this piece is very unfamiliar for us because we we get distracted and by the compelling drama of whatever the problem is we're dealing with, whether it's addiction or a fight with your partner or some communicate or a health issue or the climate change or the political media or the coming of AI or the, right? And it it turns into the thing that we have to solve. Right. And in doing that, we have actually lost the rigor. Right. We think it's the only way to have rigor. Right. Is to isolate the problem to the actual knowable knows. Right. And you get the data and the metrics and you can solve the real thing. But you've lost the rigor at that moment of being able to perceive from multiple contextual places. And I don't mean just streaming in a bunch of data from a lot of directions because no, that will not is, work. No, it, it, even when when you say that, I'm hoping that you know the social justice people hear, oh, you mean from the perspective of the most disadvantaged, right. from the perspective of the most vulnerable in the system. I mean, all these other perspectives that we don't take into account when we do, oh, we're going to have a new housing rule. It's going to lower interest rates for homeowners. It's like, who's that helping? Right. You know, so there's there's even on a basic policy level, Mm -hmm. you know, we don't take multiple humans into account or multiple kinds of humans. But I understand you're doing it from another perspective. But there's a lot of there's a lot of different ways to justify uh, what you're saying as increased rigor rather than less rigor. But it's a new it's a new approach. It feels funny. Yeah. And it doesn't fit into 
the what the board of directors have scoped as where the the money should right. be placed or where the project should happen or where the right so it's just not viable right. in our way of thinking right now to actually work with the double binds that we're living in which are huge right they are huge right but or not but and mm. and but um and <laughs> but, but and but and but and right there's a both there's both there's a both and neither in there and i'm of the your ilk mm. but I have so many internal reservations that I want to share them as if I'm on the other side. I'm not, okay. it's not quite playing devil's advocate, but it's playing Douglas, okay. Douglas, Douglas advocate. advocate. Go right. for it. Let's hear it. All right. So when we talk about nth order observation, which you talk a lot about, which is really just an easy way of, of saying the, the more system wide, I mean, there's, 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 the first order thing that you do, there's the second order effects of what you've done, and there's third order effects, and the fourth, and there's all the different things. So nth order observation is, it's, it's an impossible thing, ultimately, but we can move towards it as we open up our observation to all these other perspectives, other ways of seeing. For me, nth order observation is different than traditional scientific observation, mm -hmm. in that it feels softer and more intuitive. It's like, it's what I do when I'm in whatever my genius mode is. It doesn't feel rigorous in the traditional way of rigorous. It's not from studying. I might have studied a while, but I kind of pull back mm -hmm. and have something closer to what you would call spiritual or stoned or intuitive thinking about something. Like the image of the mother with the baby feels more like an intuitive sense. It's real. It's more grounded, but it's also a more intuitive way of communicating these values than the listicle. Okay, this is tricky. Yeah. Yeah, because there's a whole lot of people out there who are are praising imagination and intuition right now. Right. And some of them are scary to me. And there there's a <laughs> there's an issue that I think we need to address right. before we use the term. Okay. Okay, because in both cases with both of those words, there's this issue that Sometimes I think that I'm having an intuition, but really it's just the same epistemology. It's just the same set of paranoias or thinkings right. that, right? But, but I don't know. And sometimes I have an intuition and that intuition actually comes from something that connects all life. Okay. Same with imagination. Sometimes I think I have imagined this beautiful thing, but actually it's just a rehash in different color spectrum or different vocabularies or different shapes and sizes, you know, so much of right. what quote unquote innovation is, is not innovation. Right. Okay. So much of what I might imagine if I were to cast right now and think, I want the future to look like this and cast this right. line. What is informing that? Some Disney movie you saw when you were seven, maybe. And, or... and some newspapers and right. some math classes and this conversation. But a right. whole bunch of stuff is in me right. informing that that imagination and that intuition. So I feel very careful with those words because I can't quite give them full looseness of of being connected to all the existing ways of thinking that are trying to perpetuate themselves. Right. Right. So this is where I'm a little bit like, mm, watch right. out with those, with those, because they're generally, they're sneaking in the same contamination, but they're pretending. Right. And we see the results of that. I mm -hmm. mean, that's where some of the, the, the far right crazies and the far left crazies, I mean, it goes in weird directions. I mean, there's also a weird is good. What, what freaks me yeah. out is actually when it's not weird. <laughs> right. When it's familiar. When it's just fascism or just rage, or and it just, just it just it's already pulling on a string that's there, right? It's already it's like a Lego block that sticks right to the next Lego block, and it works. Where something that's weird is actually getting loose of that epistemological grid, and it's it's something slithering out the side that is incoherent. You know, that's that's this is why I talk about surrealism in the book as right. being something so important right now. Things that allow for us to reach to another context of sense making that are going to pull us. You know, when, right. when the impressionists first started to learn about surrealism, 
well, as they weren't learning, but the, what they did is they went to other countries and they saw other cultures of art and they decided that it was surreal. Uh-huh. But it was surreal to them because right. they couldn't read the codes. They didn't know the contexts. Mm. It was just surreal to them. It wasn't surreal to the peoples who, for whom that art was their language, right? right? Because it was encoded. It was already part of their world. So right. I guess what I'm saying is this deep familiarity with all of these kinds of codes of language, of behavior, of that it can be so seductive that you want to stay in your set of codes and right. to go out of them is something scary. You don't know what, what that is. You don't, right. it's not a familiar world, but that, that's where the weird is. And that's when the weird gets in. That's when you have the possibility, possibility, possibility. Right. If it looks trippy, it looks trippy, not because it is trippy. It looks trippy because you're still elsewhere. Elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> it's not trippy at all. Right. From that side. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so the, what I was going to follow was that as we move towards what seemed to me like a more intuitive, soft focus, pull back to see the mm-hmm. trees thing, how that moves toward that almost like theosophical sort of, uh, uh, it can go into dangerous places. It can move into the, and I get it today, we have a, a strong and important anti-institutional urge partly because people are recognizing in a healthy way their institutions are stuck like the UN goals, but in a destructive, angry way, as if to kill the baby with the bathwater, you know, the anti-institutionalism is in itself, well, it's not being fueled by what you're talking about. It's Mm. being fueled by some kind of rage or some cynical, you know, so it's tricky, I guess. At the same time that we are we're considering the ways in which worldviews have been institutionalized and need to be kind of broken open or set free. At the same time, on the same side of wanting to move away from these institutional biases are people who are really dangerous. I think there's a whole lot of things happening yeah. in that. And, you know, this is a show called Team Human. And one of the things around this institutional an anti-institutional question for me is the recognition that so many of these institutions were forged in an era of industrial metaphors. Right. And because of that, they are inherently unable to do what needs to be done. Now, that doesn't mean that we should burn them down, but we shouldn't think that, oh, if we just, you know, try to work slowly from the inside that they'll eventually be able to do that they cannot you know right. by, by that i mean the police force more than often than not is arresting people for their poverty for not having any or for their mental health issues or for their you know they can't go to the place they need to go or you know kids that are having trouble in school get graded and tested and they're getting tested on something that is you know, their concerns are how to live in a house with alcoholic parents or how to deal with a sick mother or, you know, and and that's not on the test. You can't ask that about. So all of these things are transcontextual and they're not reachable from the other directions because these intuition, these institutions were formed in times when industrialism was, was burgeoning. Right. And, and at that same time, and and this is something that isn't really that explicit in the book, but it's been something for me that's been the deep study of the last few years, is what was happening in the beginning of eugenics. How did that happen? And for me, this is absolutely part of your question, because I started to learn more about my grandfather, William Bateson, who uh-huh. who coined the term genetics. Oh, he did. In 1905. Oh, my God. And, of course, he was in the heart of this scientific community, of which there really weren't that many people. Globally, there were, what, 40 people or something. Mm. And most of his colleagues were starting to get interested in eugenics because the first thing that they wanted to do was control nature, right? And what they did is they created 
a particular definition of what was normal. And then they could identify what was abnormal, and that could be either fixed or eliminated. Okay, this idea infiltrated all the institutions. It's the word economics happened in this moment. Psychology became emerged in this moment. The school system happened. The health system happened. And they are all deeply touched by this thinking of how to control and how to define what's normal so you know what's abnormal. Then there's the procedures of how what medications or other things need to happen to fix you if you're not normal. And it was all really about how to keep the thing going. And so all kinds of mishaps and illusions and constructs came out of that from personality tests to IQ tests to ideas about development. I mean, we were talking about the birds a minute ago. Where's the development of the bird? Is it in the bird? Is it in the forest? Is it in the worms? Is it in the, where's the bird? Where's that development actually taking place? So my feeling about this anti-institutional moment is that the reckoning is there. It isn't really about whether or not the institutions can or can't or will or won't produce the outcomes we want. It's really about recognizing the ghosts that are living in us and through us. And those ghosts look like my 16-year-old stepson wanting to take personality tests. Which Harry Potter character am I? What version? Am I level five? Am I green? Am I this? Am I that? And that these things are actually quite dangerous. And they're running through all so much of our world. So I feel that- If you that- know what your engram is or what your, those, what are those, those- job tests and they tell you you're a yeah. extroverted blah blah blah. And yeah. and so so much of this stuff happened in this moment in that turn of the century, well actually the late 1800s. And so I think what I'm doing here with this book which really isn't explicit in the book. Mm-hmm. Maybe in a couple places. There's a piece called Finding a Way mm-hmm. where I talk about it, but is beginning to recognize that we are all carrying these habits of thinking and these ghosts are running through us. And without knowing it, we're perpetuating these systems because it's so deep. And the logic right. of efficiency, the logic of of production, the yeah. logic is... It's the logic of utilitarianism. Really. Exactly. And then you see it again, you know, like Sam Bankman fried well-meaning, maybe he was, you know, becomes an effective altruist based on some Oxford philosopher and mm. has the idea. They, they take Jeremy Bentham, mm-hmm. who again was writing at the beginning of the industrial age. We yep. should have, how do we have a utilitarian logic that leads to the greatest happiness for the most number of people? And they look and say, oh, well, there's going to be 20 billion artificial intelligences out in the universe someday. So we should, we should optimize for their happiness and let the 8 billion larvae that are alive today, you know, suffer. But it's exactly. Nuts. And, and I mean, I think you just summed it up beautifully right there because this optimization is inherently dehumanizing. Right. We and, think of it as justice. Yeah. Or we, we think of it as it's some kind of logic. Right. But it's a logic that eliminates the world of variables, that eliminates the world of love. They eliminate right. the possibility. So I want to read you the dedication to this Please. book because it's make this conversation is making me think of that. So the dedication says, this book is offered to your pheromones that help you fall in love. I give this book to the you of so long ago that felt alone in not fitting into the world people called normal. I offer this work to your one crazy eyebrow hair with a twist all of its own. This book is for your breath coming and going unannounced, making you implicit in the same wind that moves the clouds and the trees. I dedicate this book to the way in which you know, even as you try to describe a dream, that your words cannot express the vivid realm you encountered there. But you grope for language anyway. Mm. These untamed and unmappable phenomena are reminders of uninvited possibilities to be alive together beyond illusions of control. 
to these possibilities, I offer everything I am. What your work seems to do, and it's best, I think, is you nourish the space of possibility. You're encouraging it. You're coaching us to embrace the body. It's okay. It's okay. okay. You're playing with us. You're mm. opening up. You're saying, mm, go there. It's okay. Because on the other side, you know, this is why I've been arguing for, for possibility over probability. And I get it. There's wonderful, wonderful people working in blockchain and all that. And what they want to do is figure out, don't worry, life's gotten really complex. But now that we have the blockchain, we can account for everything. You know what I mean? We'll get it all on there. Everything will be on this new, we have a new balance sheet yeah. to take care of it all. But you're saying, no, 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 no. That's good. Enjoy your balance sheet. But it's not where it's happening. It's not going to be the source of how we, you know, retrieve what we need and reconcile with, with our present. Yeah. You know, with the warm data stuff, I finally sort of shortened that definition of warm data to basically talking about information that is alive. What would right. it be like if information itself was alive? How would we deal with that information differently? And how can we possibly actually respond to the living world with information that's not alive and hope to keep generating life that makes life, that makes right. life, that makes life, that makes life. And when you look at how a forest works or any one organism in a forest it is like you said, it's if you describe it from all the different directions and all its relationships, it's creating life in so many right. ways. But that's why scientists for so long only really worked on the dead. You killed the butterfly and put a pin in it and said what it was. You know, you mm. it's not a living butterfly anymore. And you can learn a lot about butterflies. You, you just can't learn much about the meadow. Right. And the meadow is meadowing. Okay. Somehow right. the meadow continues to be a meadow while all the organisms are changing in it. And they have to change, right. otherwise the meadow cannot be a meadow. Right. So and it, towards the end of the book, actually, yeah. you apply that same logic to the difference between a market and a commons, mm. which is really the market, you can use math, mm. you know, and figure out everybody's this one, this one, that one, and, and there's a price for everything. But when you go to the commons, you're back in the meadow. Now it's a very different set of relationships, right? You can, how many liters of milk came out of that liters? How many millimeters of, of milliliters of milk came out of the breast yeah. to feed the baby? Yeah. You could do in the market. But what's actually happening there and the grandmother who's there to help the mother and the one who's, that's the commons, right? That's right. everybody contributing for the benefit of all. You know, so, I mean, you, you, did you think, you, you've been thinking deeply, I guess, about Sort of how, how warm data and possibility applies to, uh, well, our inability to really, uh, currently, our inability to contend with warm data and our inability to think in space of possibility is part of what's hampering mm -hmm. our ability to even conceive of a commons. You know, you talk to bankers, they can't, they can't, they just say tragedy of the commons. That's all they say. They don't even know and it's a thing. And even that, I mean, Tragedy of the Commons was written by Garrett Harding, who was a card-carrying eugenicist. eugenicist. <laughs> <laughs> it comes back around, doesn't it? Yeah. So, you know, the whole point was he developed that lifeboat exercise. There's a whole chapter on yeah. that called Finding a Way, where in the lifeboat exercise, you know, you're supposed to figure out if there's 100 seats on the lifeboat. No, there's 50 seats on the lifeboat and there's 100 people drowning. And who are you going to choose? Okay. How do you make the decision of who you're going to save? And this is the whole ethics question. Do you keep the elderly because they have knowledge? Do you keep the youth because they have a future? Do you keep the sick because who are you if you don't? Or do you keep the healthy because they have potential? Uh -huh. And pretty soon, who the hell are you? Like, what kind of questions are those? And it's premised on the idea that those human beings are units. Right that they're basically numbers floating in the water. They're not numbers. They're not numbers. They're human beings with a whole complex history and life. And they've fallen in love and they've broken their arm and they've climbed trees and they've lost a loved one and they've learned how to do things. And, and this question then becomes not even what's your skill set and what's your skill set and what's your skill set and how can we make our skill sets come together to make this function? Because actually... That doesn't work either. 
then you're back in a mechanistic right. thinking. The question is, who can you be when you're with me? Who can I be when I'm with you? This is an ecological mm. question, right? So we can take this thing and we can show how the questions that he was asking are so deeply violent. They're so deeply vulgar to the notion of life. When what's possible is actually completely particular to the way that the people in the water and the boat are able to communicate. Right. And what they make together. And every group would do it differently. And also just that it's the first kind of ethical question we ask. Even today, people talk about you know autonomous vehicles. They go right to the, the trolley problem. Right. Do you kill the three people here, the two people there? And how do you program? It's like, where is your head? You know, where? <laughs> Where's your head at? <laughs> yeah. Where is your head? But this is what I'm talking about with these ghosts. We have these ghosts mm. running through us. And before we know it, we start asking questions like that. And I'm including myself in that because it's so intrinsic. It's implicit. It's tacit. It's part of us. So, but, right. so I think this is the thing of how to participate together in, in essentially thinking about what it is you're putting into the space between us. What's in the ecology of communication? What are you bringing in? What's the texture? What's the flavor? If I say something, what does it make possible for you to say? If I do something, what kind of possibilities does, does that doing open? What is it close? And starting to pay attention in an ecological way to the minutia of the day, the smallest details of just how you move in a day what you say, who you look at, how you look at them, this notion that... What's so fascinating, I'm thinking about like people going, you're going to go to work, you're going to be in a meeting tomorrow, or maybe this afternoon, if you're listening to this in the morning. What if you spent just one meeting at your company thinking about how does each thing you say either reduce or open possibility? I mean, because I'm when I'm in a meeting, I'm tr usually trying to get to the answer so we get to the next thing. So I'm trying to lock it down. It's like, what happens when you when you flip the other way? I mean, all of a sudden, I mean, and I'm only learning this now because I never worked with people. I was a, a writer for so many years mm -hmm. alone. Now I'm going to faculty meetings and going, oh, you know, their ideas are good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and. But to open that, to in other words, to make the meeting about. Not getting to answers, but getting to these new possibilities is, I mean, it's the opposite of what we're taught. That's why it's kind of a radical book. Right. I like to describe this book as like the, it's a very beautiful, warm, and inspiring fuck you to a whole lot right. of existing thinking. Right. But it is actually. It's it quite is. rebellious. Well, it's an invitation to something beautiful. Yes. And the fuck you is a necessary thing, but that's what I'm trying to help people distinguish between the our fuck you and say Steve Bannon's fuck you. And it's a really important difference. Right. This is what I was saying with the institutions. The issue is not my fellow humans. The issue is a set of ideas that is keeping us apart and is is preventing us from being right. able to produce life together. Right. And just because those ideas are wrong doesn't mean these other ones are right. No. Right. Which is what happens. Like, I think I told you about this. I got really upset. I mean, Steve Bannon read, you know, like a whole chapter of Team Human out loud on his show going, yay, you know, Rushkovs is fighting against the technocracy and all mm -hmm. that. And, and, but then he takes it to this other place, you know, of, therefore <laughs> we must rise up and do, you know, yeah. it's like, no, or I hear the, uh, uh, you know, the, the right-wing fascists in Italy talking about, you know, humans have to fight off the shed of these institutions and all, but then replace it with near neo-fascist, uh, white supremacy. It's like, no, 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 you don't, <laughs> no, okay. no, 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 <laughs> you don't get rid of that eugenicism to bring, to do this new eugenicism. But that's what happens when you don't know about your ghosts. This is what I'm talking about. Right. You can you can say this thing isn't working, let's burn it down. But if you haven't met the ghosts, you will just repeat them. Right. Revolutionaries end up what cutting off everybody's head. It's like, wait a minute, what are you doing? Right. So that's why I really feel like that point in history is really important to look at right now. Right. Because it's lurking. And it's lurking in mm. ways that are that are eugenics inspired. They're not exactly eugenics. So you can't really say, oh, that's eugenics. Right. 
let's just cancel it. But there is enough of something in there that was for all the, you know, they, it, it was supposed to be altruistic. Let's, if you, the idea was if we could make better human beings, you could have a better society. Right. Right. That was the idea. Now, it doesn't sound that bad until you realize we know what happened with that and it right. didn't go well at all. So this idea that you can fix a system by fixing the parts. Right. Okay. And the thing is, you can't fix a system by fixing the parts because the system's in the relationships, which is why that stupid lifeboat question is so wrong, because it has nothing to do with what are the possibility of the relationships between the people on the boat. Right. What might they find? So they will find a way. They will figure it out. They will take turns swimming. They'll tie their clothes together. They'll do this. They'll do that. They'll work it out. They will find a way, just like my kids on the bus. Let's find a way. We don't know our way. Let's find it. Right. Right. And we don't know what it's going to be, but let's pay attention to each other and the world around us. And that's a very rigorous type of attention. Right. And figure out a, a new possibility. But you didn't worry you're going to get hit on the head and thrown in a ditch and then find yourself in a shipping container being sent to somewhere. I didn't. That's not actually never crossed my mind. But, but it could have. I mean, now that you mention it, it might have happened. <laughs> but you, you had enough faith in, in reality to uh, not to go down those. I mean, because I could think, I know, I know of tourists who... If they like lose their American Express checks in Paris, remember American Express. Don't checks. leave home without it. Yes, not everybody <laughs> remembers those. <laughs> it was Carl Malden who played a cop on the streets of San Francisco. He what he was known for. So they had this sort of you know very masculine cop figure telling you, <laughs> "Don't leave home without this." But it was like people's sense of having a tether back to the embassy or something to protect them when they're in some tourist town in Europe, but whatever. But people feel so unsafe so easily. And I mean, here's something I'll get in trouble for saying, but I I really, I'm not so sure that there's anything less safe than safety. Mm. I mean, at this point, we're not safe. We're not safe. Our children are not safe. They're not safe from a lot of ideas, a lot of chemicals, a lot of technology, a lot of, you know, the future is not safe for them. It's not safe. And so seeking safety in the familiar is only a perpetuation of the same things that are creating the problems. Right. And I mean, I grew up at Esalen uh-huh. in the 70s, and that was a place where it wasn't safe. I can promise you that. Yeah. It was not safe, but things were happening. And what was interesting was how weird it was. Okay. So when I'm talking about weird, let me tell you, I've lived in the weird. (laughs) I have been there. And that weirdness was unhinged and irrational and misguided and dangerous, but it loosened up the fibers of thought, of perception. It made little gaps where things, new ideas could come in. It made it possible to actually do things in new ways. And clearly, looking back at that time from here, it didn't work. I mean, that, that was well, not- Well, in the, itself, it didn't work, but- But, but I, I witnessed as a child yeah. some very important aspects of what it means to really have social change. And it requires weird- and that weird is not safe. No, and some people take one for the team, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, everyone yeah. actually probably does in some way. And, you know, we saw things as children we should have never seen. <sighs> but I, I did see something that I'm glad I saw there, which was what it looks like when grown-ups don't plateau. Mm. When grown-ups are interested in continuing to learn and change the possibilities that are ahead for them. And when grown-ups look back at the ideas that they were brought up into and are able to begin to find where they were restrictive. Right. So that was good. But it takes weird. I mean, they were crazy. They were super cuckoo. And I got stories. (laughs) No, and that's, you know, and that's, we need a little more 
a little more weird today. Rigorous weird. Rigorous weird and warm weird. Right. The problem with that weird is that it was rooted in this idea of it is I, the self, that must develop. Right. Okay? And this thing is no good. This creates a lot of narcissistic weirdos. And then it was like, well, I'm more developed than you. Mm. And that happened really very quickly, whether they were more physically developed or more spiritually developed or more, you know, academically developed or this or that. But that's where where I'm really interested in this other piece of who can you be when you're with me? Mm. Let's bring that into an ecological experiment, into an ecological process together, into an ecological mutual learning. I want to learn who I can be when I'm with you, Doug, because it's so different than who I can be when I'm with someone else. And who can you be when you're with me? And that's the orientation I like that I want to take with me from this conversation, particularly as a, supposedly as a professor, is to think rather than thinking about how can I make new possibilities for myself? How can I develop? Just to think totally in terms of what possibilities am I creating for each person I'm interacting with? Yeah. Wear that set of glasses for a while. You know, wear that mindset for a while. Um, It just seems like a really fun way to move through life, just to create possibilities for others. And to see that this thing, we're shaping each other. Right. So what are we shaping? And when we come into a situation thinking, well, I got it. I need to say my piece. I've got to do this thing because this is what's on my mind. Right. You know, there's a context here. <laughs> and the things that you say are going to land. Where are they landing? Mm. What is the alchemy? What is the, the pH that they're landing in? What are the, the cultural codes and traumas and everything else that what you say are landing in? Because they're not just words. You can't just say a thing. Well, when you go to it, I was going to end on that, but let me ask you this. When you go, like, I'm going to go to Japan in a few weeks, mm. and I'm supposed to talk about my books and whatever, and they're going to put me in, a, in an auditorium in front of a bunch of people, and I'm supposed to, like, talk for 45 minutes or an hour. And it's so weird for me now as I become more influenced by by you and and let's even say and people and ideas like yours mm-hmm. it's harder for me to get up there and just how can i deliver it's like here's my canned hour for mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. Is, i mean do you just get up do you get up and talk at them first or do you do you start in the room with them well i start generally with story and personal stories mm. stories from my life in hopes that I can hear stories from their life. Right. But I feel like when you tell a story from your life, everything's in there. It's economics, it's culture, right. it's family, it's history, it's psychology, it's it's everything. All the contexts of our world are in every story that you can tell. Every single one. And so when you're there, you're in the complexity. You're in it. So what what I I'm in this sort of interesting practice of is how to express from within that instead of getting seduced by the about. We can talk about the complexity all day long, but what does it look like when you're in it? Mm. How do you be in it together? And I had an incredible trip to Japan last summer. I had an experience that was so profound for me. And I wrote about it in one of these pieces of, I got invited into a tea house. Mm -hmm. And I realized as I entered the tea house that not many Western women get to go in there, you know? And the the geisha were sitting there for geisha. And I had absolutely no idea. Where do I put my hands? How do I hold my face? Where do I keep my eyes? Where do I put my feet? What do I do? Do I look up? Do I bow? Do I, who do I, Mm. like, there were, all I could know is that I was in a room of so many codes, Mm. but I didn't know what they were. And it was a really interesting moment of like really not knowing what to do. I didn't know who I was or how to even convey anything. And I was telling this story to somebody last night, and he said, well, the difference is that it mattered to you, that you cared. And for a lot of people, they wouldn't have noticed those codes because they didn't care. Right. But it was fascinating 
to be in that room and just recognize one thing I noticed was how many codes I do know for mm. other contexts, but I never noticed that I knew those before right. because I just, you know, you know how to go in a restaurant and get a table and like what to do when your friend sits down and when people come in, you, you, you know, the right volume, you know, the right amount of exuberance, mm -hmm. you know, you don't know that, you know, but you know, yeah. <laughs> and in this situation, I was just like, wow. I don't yeah. know what to do. Like, what do, do I eat first? Do you eat first? Do I, do I talk about my family? Do I not talk about family? Do I, just absolutely wow. no idea. So I love that. And I, I love that you're going feeling like you don't know what the hell to do or say, yeah. because I think that's wildly appropriate. And in those moments of cultural confusion, you're there. Right. That is exactly that space I'm talking about, where you are, there's a hole in the locked box of your epistemological right stuff and in that moment what is is not and you don't know what is anymore i mean everything is different marriage love family mm -hmm. friendship respect like it's all spun it's super healthy yeah to practice being there because i think that's what we need how are we going to get out of these grooved ways of being without practicing being a little lost beautiful well thank you thank you for combining thank you thank you for being on team human thank you for inviting me it's always such a pleasure and happy reincarnated at the same time <laughs> great luck <laughs> and thank you for being on team human Team Human is produced by Joshua Chaplin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.